Welcome to the Working Dog Depot podcast with your hosts, Rich Harden and Howard Young. All right, Howard Young, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Rich. How about you, buddy? Not bad. This is, uh, what, episode number three of the year? Yes, yes, it is three. Nice. We're uh, nice. not off to a record pace, but we're doing all right. Well, the holidays are tough. We're playing catch-up now, that's, and that's okay. Um, there's been a lot of sickness, too. I actually thought yeah. I was coming down with something again this week, but I think it ended up being just allergies. Some of the costs of uh, training in an old school building that hasn't been used probably black mold and who knows what else yeah absolutely guarantee it guarantee it well, good glad you're all well sorry i can't make uh lisa's birthday coming up next in the, on the on the second or third but uh yeah. i would love to be there it's gonna be a big shindig you only I mean, turned 60 she, once i told her she could you know she could only have one 60th birthday oh, I, I thought she was 70 <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. Make sure you tell her I said that. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> this evening, we have a gentleman, and I'm going to sell him so short on this introduction because uh, he's he's a, a great guy that's been around for a long time, very well established in this community, uh, has been a handler and a trainer for many years. I know that he started Police Canine Magazine, and uh, he's been oh. an integral part of hits over the years. He's also a podcaster and has launched a new podcast recently called the Police Canine Training Podcast, and we would like to introduce Jeff Meyer. Hey, Jeff. Welcome Hi. to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's an, it's an honor, man. Nice to meet you, and, and thanks for taking your time to sit down with us. Oh, absolutely. So we typically really want to hear about how, really, how you got started, and I know you're known for, uh, right now, I hear your name a lot when it comes to doing e-collar seminars. Yeah. And I, I would hope that we can maybe deep dive into that a little bit because I was looking back, it's really kind of funny. The, our two most popular episodes, the central topic was e-collars. Sure. Yeah. Which is really interesting out of 33 episodes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a hot topic. It always has been. And, and Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of stuff to discuss on that. So definitely, definitely a passion of mine. Okay. Cool. Very cool. Well, Jeff, Jeff, how how did did you you get started? I'm sorry, Howard, didn't mean to cut you off. so the the short version is uh, obviously you know I started as, as a police officer, and I I got a job in uh, my luckily I I got one police job and I kept it my whole thirty three and a half years didn't move departments. Oh, wow. So I started wow. uh, I started with the Denver Police Department in nineteen eighty nine, and I I did a internship at a, at another department when I was in college, and I saw the the they had a two person canine unit at the time, and got to be around them just briefly not too much. Uh, and, but I thought it looked kind of cool. And then when I got to the police academy, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what they want to do and stuff. And I never having trained dogs or anything, I thought it, that looked cool, but I don't know what I want to do. You know, I just want to be mm-hmm. a cop. And then uh, during the academy, a guy came walking in the academy and he put a, put his dog down and just a down, just a standard down and walked out of the room to go talk to somebody. I sat there and stared at this dog. It was a German shepherd. And sat there and stared at this dog, and I thought it looked to me it was like magic that he could put this dog in a down and then mm-hmm. walk out of the room, and everybody was there, and I and I just got hooked. I was like, you know, this is something I want to do. And then just through luck, uh, you know, I ended up uh, having a neighbor who was on the unit, 
and had some command that our, our, in our department, they move command around a lot. And I had had some command that had cycled through the SWAT unit, the canine unit, and then we're in my district and I worked hard there. So I started getting some time to go over and start decoying with the, the canine unit and had a had an aptitude for that and a desire to do it. So, uh, you know, put a lot of time in there. And then uh, after I'd been uh, on the street for uh, six years, they ended up, uh, I got permanently assigned to the canine unit and got a dog and, and uh, never left. Uh, it was just, mm-hmm. it was too good of a assignment. And then I was lucky. I, I stayed in the patrol section. I worked quite a few uh, dogs there, uh, one dual purpose and some single purpose patrol dogs. And it was, it was a fun unit because we were busy enough. We had, we had uh, about 1400 cops and most of the 18 years I was there, and starting from 96, when we were really quite busy, we did a lot of perimeter searches. We, it would, wouldn't be uncommon to do four or five perimeter searches in a, in a shift and find some bodies on those and, and go, you know, they'd be holding a perimeter while we were working on a perimeter. And, but at the time we'd have, we were bouncing around usually eight to 10 dogs out of 15, 1400 cops. So it was, uh, I was fortunate to, you know, that we were real busy and, uh, that's all that was our only assignment we didn't have to do calls or anything else it was just dog stuff and then um after uh i'd done that for quite a while as a trainer um i got tasked with uh not really tasked i should say i got the opportunity they asked me if i wanted to start a detection canine unit for the downtown area so we had bomb dogs out at the airport but we didn't have any bomb dogs out of our headquarters and uh they wanted to know if i would do that and my first answer was, I don't think so. I'm having fun. <laughs> I had a, a commander he, he, who was a really, really good commander, do anything for the guy, took very, very good care of everybody. And he uh, said, you know, just come down and talk to me. And we, we talked and he said, you know, if, if the, in this program, I just want you to start it, write the policy, pick the equipment, pick the pick your dog, pick the hours, do it every one. He said, I want dogs that are well-trained. I know you can do that. And he said, the only rule is, is that if I call you on the phone, I want you to answer the phone. I thought, man, how do you, how do you turn down a job like that? And he was, mm-hmm. he was good to his words. So then the last, uh, about seven years of my job, I, I was, uh, training all the dogs around the department a little bit. And then they, I went to other agencies, trained their dogs, kept our dogs up. I ended up when I left, I had two Labradors. I had a bomb dog and then I had another one that was, uh, currency and uh guns and uh just it was just the whole my whole career I, I it was all kind of dog related so and in that time of uh of doing it i you know became a, a trainer of the unit and that uh afforded me they they sent me to a lot of schools so i went to to several long-term schools i went to to the utah post canine program i went there two different times for nine weeks and seven weeks which was Ooh. you know a great opportunity to go there and meet new handlers and train dogs and stuff. So, and then is I was that involved. Wendell Nope. Is that him? Wendell yep. Nope. Wendell Nope. Yep. Yeah. So I've been involved with that program, you know, most of my career. And, uh, like, like I said, I, I, I just, I, I, I had a lot of great opportunities and I think I made the most of those opportunities every time I got them by working as hard as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. So that, that was basically my career. I retired, uh, a year ago, uh, this coming March. So, and as you guys know, retirement's kind of nice. So, I, oh yeah, <laughs> if if it you can stay retired, sure. right? yeah. <laughs> do, but do so, we really retire, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. 
the perimeter searches that you're describing, were they, they done uh, in an off-leash fashion? Yeah, you know, our department, um, I, I know you guys probably have, I don't, I'm not sure, but if you know anybody's listened to like Mike Goosby, the way they do their things, our department had a, a history going way, way back, long before I was ever involved in it. Um, we had trainers that had met some of the LA guys early, early in the like late 80s, early 90s. They'd met some of them and traded a lot of ideas. And LA was the one who, you know, they were very good about setting perimeters and luckily we had some some we had a sergeant who was running our unit again before I was on the job I and mean, he had met them and went out and saw how they did it and we mimicked a whole lot of what they did as far as uh, training our cops to set a perimeter and then we would put you know three or four or five dogs off leash and do a yard to yard area search and and not and do it in a systematic fashion and that was that was the way we operated all the time we uh, really didn't track um, it wasn't really necessary. And uh, if you've ever looked at a map of Denver, over over most of Denver, it's a very straight grid. So it was mm-hmm. there's parts of the the northeast part and the southwest part that are not, but most of the traditional parts of Denver are just a grid, straight streets with an alley in the middle, and real easy to set, nice, clean type perimeters. So real fortunate place to work. And we had, uh, you know, we usually had, at least on every night shift, we'd have, you know, four or five dogs working so we could go and knock out a four or five block perimeter fairly quickly. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Also, Police Canine Magazine, I didn't make that connection until I saw a post recently. I didn't realize that that was uh, the magazine that you started. Yeah, uh, that was... uh, so when I started in, in, in as a handler and even as a, you know, doing decoy stuff, that's obviously it was before the internet, it's the early mm-hmm. 90s. And, and uh, there wasn't, you know, I, I read, there was a couple books, you know, Bob Eden's book, first book was right. out. I read that and um, there wasn't any like publications on the police either. dogs. And I was, I was always kind of a magazine junkie, you know, and I'd always have subscriptions to different magazines, a hockey magazine or a gun magazine. I remember... That back then there was a magazine called Police Magazine, and you'd get it. Mm-hmm. And it'd have yeah. articles on tactics and different stuff, and it was a good, good magazine. And I, you know, there was nothing for dog stuff, so I started uh, playing with the idea that hey, maybe I'll start a magazine for police dogs. And that was one of those. I was lucky because I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Because if I did, right. I never, I never would have started it. <laughs> <laughs> kind of got going on it and i i was writing a business plan I'm, i've got i'm a bit of an entrepreneur so i started writing a business plan and uh playing with it and then i actually started buying books about how to start a magazine and uh there's the, at the time because magazines were still good then i mean now they're a pretty dead industry but they they were a big deal and uh kept researching that ended up i i found somebody through one of the magazines that was a consultant that would help you start a magazine. And I called her up and told her who I was and what I was going to do. And she's like, so, you know, what magazine do you work for? I was like, I don't, I'm a cop. And she's like, do you have a journalism degree or what's your magazine background? <laughs> I said, I don't, have, I don't know anything about him. And she's like, well, you're crazy. And she said, so I'll tell you what I'll do. She said, I'll find the title of the magazines that cover this. She said, cause there's a magazine for everything. So I'll just find the magazines. I'll tell you who to subscribe to and save you the trouble. And she was kind of rude. And so then the next day she called, she's like, oh my God, 
There's no right. magazines for this. So <laughs> totally different tune. And she was, you know, what what she should have charged, she'd hardly charged me anything because she was so excited. She wanted to help police. She was very, you know, very much a, a supporter of cops and stuff. And uh, she wanted to help us get information out. And she thought it was cool to start a magazine that had never been published in the industry. So she helped me. And uh, in 2005, we published our first issue. And I had it for uh, nine years, and it was it was awesome. It was a great great opportunity, and it was a grind at the same time. You know, I was working full time. I'd, I'd work seven at night till three in the morning, and then I'd roll out of bed about seven thirty to maybe fifty or sixty emails, and I'd sit at my computer and I'd start trying to answer emails. And and at first, I was doing all the sales for the ads, and I had a I had one designer and at one editor. And then uh, kind of doing everything else. And then uh, by the time I sold it, I had two uh, people that that worked for me selling ads. And then I had a designer and an editor and a uh, a couple of people doing stuff. So it it, it was it it took off better than I could have ever, ever imagined. And uh, it it gave me the opportunity. I, I did so many things. I went to Europe a few times as guests of different uh, places because they, they knew I had a magazine and wanted me to do stories. And uh, yeah. it, it worked out great. And then uh, it was getting to be just such, such a grind because magazines weren't doing super great. And I kept getting bugged by a person who wanted to buy it. And finally, uh, the the number was 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 too good to say no. And, and the timing was great. I, I, I missed the connections I had at, for a minute with them, but I kept all those connections through having hits because through through the magazine i ended up meeting the guys that i started hits with and uh, when i sold the magazine we we made hits it was already its own company so we didn't uh, sell any part of hits had nothing to do with it and i was able to keep all the connections i had made through running the the hits seminars well i had my nose in that k9 magazine a lot (laughs) yeah it was it was fun in fact i i did that post just thinking man i can't believe it's been uh 10 years since I sold it. And, uh, it was cool. One of the, one of the posts, the guy said, uh, I always had one of those, in my patrol car. <laughs> I saw a lot of them, you know, when I'd go around, but yeah. I knew that I was doing something. Okay. When I was in, uh, I was traveling and I went into, uh, one of the canine units there and we were doing something. And I went in to go to the bathroom and there were some magazines in the bathroom. And I thought now, you know, this is cause that you was before arrived. cell phones. So you had, to have, <laughs> you had to have magazines in there next to the toilet before cell right. phones. So, so uh, I thought uh, this, uh, they, they, they are reading this, you know, I don't we, care. We hit the big so. time. We hit the big yeah. time. <laughs> well, it was yeah. a quality publication to, to, from my recollection. The only thing that existed prior to that was, if you remember Dog Sport Magazine, yep, yeah, which was really a, a newspaper type publication, yeah, yeah, nowhere was, near the the quality, but it was, uh, man, we just, I still, I have many epi- episodes, yeah. I have many uh, of those it's, still yeah. stored. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, it was, a, and you know, I still have, of course, all the ones from when I owned it, and it's still right. fun to flip through them. Some of the, I liked it. You know, I came up with the the concepts that were in there. I, I, I will say, I came up with those concepts so the the idea of having one question and a bunch of trainers answering that question i remember when i proposed that to to some of the trainers that were doing it i was hoping when i started that magazine to kind of bridge the gap um thinking hey we're all dog handlers but you guys have been around you remember back then you were either one association or another or you're one agency or another 
very, very little sharing of information and very, very little, like you, if you went to, if you were XYZ association, you went to their training events and there wasn't somebody from the other association there. So with that in mind, that's what I thought. I'm going to just bring everybody on board. And it took, took some phone calls to different association presidents and, and, you know, I'd have to listen, I'd have to hear them out why they hated the other association. And, <laughs> I, and I told them, you know, I don't care about you that we're all going to come on board. And once a couple of them, a couple jumped on right away, you know, well-known people back in that day, mm-hmm. once they jumped on, then some of the ones that hesitated were like, well, if they're going to be on, I'll be on. And we kind of started bringing people together. And then we took that same idea forward with hits. And when we did hits, we started inviting instructors, and there was a couple of those instructors. The very first one we did in Orlando, a couple of the instructors there were like, "Well, so and so's coming, I'm not coming." I was like, "All right, yeah. then don't come." And then when they when they heard other people were coming, they called back, "All right, well, I guess I'll come." And it was I think that was one of the first time there were some some people in there who didn't know each other but didn't like each other, you know, just because that was kind of kind of how things were. It was kind of a divided industry, and that was you know if I if I if I look back and think if I've made any any good contributions to any of this, I think I had a hand in kind of bridging the gaps and opening up the communication lines. True, it probably would have happened with the internet the way things happen. So I'm not trying to sound like I was the messiah on all that, but but I think pushing it forward a little bit, you know, if I move the needle a little bit of that, I, I could leave being proud of that. Well, I would say you certainly played a yeah. role in facilitating that. At a, and you're right, it may have happened organically, but didn't didn't hurt that it had a nice little nudge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And now, I mean, I, and you guys travel a lot too. I don't see much of that. And I don't see much yeah. of the, divi- the divisiveness that you used to see. And uh, the, it seems like people kind of recognize that we're, we're all doing the same thing. And, yeah. I would think the, well, the only thing that we've kind of noticed is that there are pockets that yep. are just now realizing that there's a whole lot more going outside of their own, entity yeah, yeah. Right. they're they're beginning to really um, this new generation of trainers is really embracing but, it, but they're also being inundated with what they see on the internet yeah so yeah they know what's I, out there i think it's hard you know i think when you see those pockets in my opinion that's usually still a trainer who usually is not that great of a trainer and doesn't have the the courage to say hey go find other stuff and bring it back we'll all get better right. and they want to keep their control over their little you know their flock that they have and I, it's pretty hard to do that now with all the information that's out there. So it is, yeah. and yeah. you know, you've got eager minds that are that are seeing things and they're going to challenge what they see, and, and yeah. rightfully so. Yeah, if they they see right. things that are that are working and uh, they have questions. Yeah, yeah. Rich- uh, the other thing I think that we, and Rich and I have had this conversation a couple of times, and that is that if we kind of look at perhaps what's happened is that the the pioneers that started it were you know they were pretty innovative at their in their time and they pass that information on and then they pass that information on and then things get lost in translation so Uh at some point these guys are doing things with dogs and they don't really have any understanding of why they're doing it except that that's the way they've always done it yep right yeah yeah and of course then when that happens whatever whatever flaws that you've trained into your system and then you pass those flaws into the next generation and they, they add in their additional flaws. You know, I, we don't get better that way. Right. You know, obviously. That's right. That's right. That's just a watered down version of a watered down version at some point. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
So you mentioned e-collars being a passion of yours. Let's, uh, I know that there's a lot of, well, not a lot, but there are a handful of folks out there that are really making a run at marketing. And and we, we know there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Everybody has their own little spin. Exactly. What would you say is the the basis or the crux of your, what's the word I'm looking for? The way in which you use your e-collar. Hey folks, we're proud to have Hold the Line Canine Conference as a supporter and sponsor of the Working Dog Depot podcast. Joe Lukowski and staff are already securing vendors and presenters for the seminar in April. That's April 9th, 10th, and 11th in a brand new location. That's right. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We are especially excited about that. It's going to cut our travel time in half. And there's nothing like being in the Carolinas in early April. And that's Hold the Line Canine Conference. We're very much looking forward to being there and hope to see you all there. Thank you. I think, you know, the the basis came from, uh, you know, at first I didn't like e-collars. And I saw saw e-collars being used. We had an e-collar in our, our unit, and it was in the, the, the drawer with the other training <laughs> stuff. And if we had a dog that was, you know, didn't want to release or something, then we would go and we'd get the e-collar out. And it looked, you guys remember him, it looked like yeah. a gigantic flashlight size, like the flashlights we carried back then. And you put in a, 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 module. a plug in the top, the nodule in the top, and black was the hottest one, and yellow was the lightest one. And, and we'd mm-hmm. take a guess at what the dog might need and strap a collar on him and then tell the dog to quit biting and then hit him with this new sensation. And some of the dogs would quit biting, but then they didn't want to bite again or, you know, and then we tried it. Uh, I had, I think I had the second Malinois in our unit and we tried that with him and he came off right away and tried to bit me right away. Like, you mm-hmm. know, and so we, and I didn't see a lot of success with it. And then seeing other agencies use them, I didn't like what I was seeing so I was kind of, by the time I was the unit trainer, I was an anti-e-collar person. And then I went, uh, I, I actually went out and I did some training with LAPD. And I saw their dogs, strong dogs, working the street, finding bad guys. And I, they all were wearing e-collars. And they were out and back and happy and doing a great job. And uh, Doug Roller was the sergeant and the trainer then. And I talked to, picked his mind a little bit and, and was like, all right. you know. So And I knew then, even before that, you know, just watching bird dogs, it was like, those dogs are not suppressed and they're doing fine, but I just hadn't seen many departments use them at the time correctly. So then I ended up, uh, the former, uh, trainer before Doug came out here, uh, Donnie Arnell did a class out here in Denver, did a class with him. And it just, it it showed me that you can use the e-collar, um, to communicate with the dog as opposed to using the collar as a punishment device. Mm-hmm. And before that, you know, a lot of people had said the, the collar is an extension of the leash, and it was all based on on punishment. So I took the basics of that and really started playing with it and really got to know it. And I think what probably differentiates, you know, what, what I like, I shouldn't say differentiates, because probably a lot of people maybe do the same thing. But uh, when I teach a three-day class, one of the things I stress over and over is that, we're not going to build a dog that is dependent on the collar. We're going to communicate with the collar and we're going to shape the dog's behavior with the collar. And then when we take that collar off, that dog's still going to do the same thing. I don't have any use for a dog that has to feel the weight of that collar or wait until you give a command 
wait a second or two and then give them the stimulation and then have them have them do the, the command. I want a dog that that through shaping and through repetitions that we pair the command and the stimulation together over and over that when the dog hears heel, he's coming back to a heel. He's opening his mouth if he's biting and he's on his way back to a heel with no stress, no stress from the collar, no, no conflict from the handler. And I've had very, very good success taking a ton of the stress that we've seen with like dogs that have release problems and the handlers start to walk up to the dog and you see the dog start vocalizing and all the conflict that's been trained in. I change up that whole paradigm to the dog and just start telling the dog, mostly um, we heal, heal the dog back. That's the only command, no name, no open your mouth command, no, no, any command. It's just, you can't heal and bite. And I'm walking this way and I want you to heal. And we start teaching the dog with high levels of stimulation. If you see like the videos that I put out on Facebook, we'll have uh, on day two, we'll have all the dogs muzzled and we'll have three or four soccer balls or basketballs that some of the dogs are playing with. I'll have two or three decoys wearing a suit top just for even more stimulation. And some of the guys are doing muzzle fights with decoys. Some of the guys are letting their dogs run around and bash these balls around and play with them. And other guys are healing their dogs around and sending them on a decoy and calling them off. And when you can when you can heal your dog by a guy who's doing a muzzle fight with another dog and a dog that is maybe runs into you with chasing a basketball, you can get that kind of stimulus, you know, clear headedness out of the dog on that. Then when you dial it back and it's just a simple certification where a decoy stand steps out it's a piece of cake because you've taught the dog that with a high level of stimulation, they can still function just fine. And there's not going to be a lot of overcorrection. So I, I, I really stress a lot on, on the, the things I stress on are, are not building a collar dependent dog and then building trust with the dog about the collar. So I see a lot of dogs that when the collar, you know, starts, when the dog starts feeling that stimulation, that trust has been broken over and over because the amount of stimulation that the dog has gotten has been inappropriate so many times that the dog feels whatever stimulation, then he assumes right away it's going to go much higher and I'm going to get really fried for doing something. So I've come up with some techniques to spend on the first day of giving the dog a lot of stimulation and just showing them we're not going to hurt you. I'm just talking to you. And it's very, very, very low, always low. And, and you know, the, the, the emphasize how low I do it we do these in public parks. We do them at a softball field, and I don't care who comes and watches. People in public can watch it. There's it's stuff that that there's no conflict with the dog. None of the dogs are are fearing the collar anymore. So once we get the dogs having that level of trust back with with the collar, then we can communicate with them. Then we can throw the the crazy situations around them where there all the stuff's going on, and it takes that stress away and. So I, I, yeah, I stress all that. And then on the day three, we'll, we'll throw some dogs out and doing things, you know, releases with people screaming and rolling around and we'll pop the collars off the dog and just show it's not the collar. It's the whole package. And, you know, are they perfect on day three? Of course not, but they're on the road to doing it. And, right. and I give them the tools that, you know, if you keep up with this and on the days you train, you can have it on there. And I think they should deploy with the collar on. Cause I think it's one more level of safety, but I don't want to have a dog that has to have a collar on just in case, obviously, the collar fails or whatever. And I also want to make sure that the dog, I am a huge, huge advocate of verbal release. 
on the street. I think tactically take cover, call the dog back. I, I'm not a fan of, of, uh, hard, hard outs and stand up. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've tried so long to stay away from this guy. And now at the moment of the apprehension, we're going to go stand over on top of this guy and try to get a dog off him. So I'm a big advocate of making sure my dog will release under all circumstances. And when we do that, those again, you know, the, the crazy stuff with the, all the balls going around and everything, just one dude under a bush that's making some noise calling off him is a piece of cake. So those are, those are kind of the, the, the real big points to what I try to teach with e-collar. And over the last, uh, I've probably been in classes now for, I'd say, at least 12, 13 years. I've done about 1,500 dog teams through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you learn a lot when you start playing with that many dogs. And every time I do a class, you know, I'll run eight to 10 dogs through the class. We get a lot of reps in. And I never leave I never leave a city where I've done one without learning a little bit because every dog and every handler and team will teach you something. So, mm-hmm. Sure. So what is the, what is your methodology for, for starting the dog on the collar? I, I like to, I don't like to train with the collar. So the dog still, you know, it's not a replacement to do your traditional right. obedience. So whether you do food, toy reward, whatever type of motivating factors you have to, to teach your basic obedience. So I want a dog that, that will generally heal. doesn't have to be perfect, but I want a dog that will heal, will have a decent down, you know, a stable down and a decent recall. None of those have to be perfect, but the dog has to understand that command means something and, and what they need to do. And then, you know, we'll, uh, usually if, if the dog's never had an e-collar on before, we'll put the collar on him and put him in a muzzle and let the ball be the, the stimulus out there. Let the dog, dog start playing with the ball. We get the ball to have a lot of value, so handlers got to get down and play with them and really wrestle around and want that dog to, to kick into that kind of high prey state of mind. And then probably put a 15-foot leash on the dog. And so as the ball's rolling away, maybe get a little distance and the dog wants to chase the ball, give him his heel command. And then we're going to just start applying the, the collar. And I only use, there's there's two brands of collars that have a rheostat dial that you can adjust the collar to the exact amount that you need each time. So and those I don't mind saying those two brands are e-collar technologies and uh, Dogtra. They're the only two that I use because every single time that I give a command, the dog's going to feel that stimulation and I'm going to start turning it up until I get a reaction out of that dog. A very, you know, maybe just his ear is going to twitch. I'm just going to get a little bit of a reaction out of the dog. And when I see that, the dog will start, you know, coming back to the heel and I'll start gradually turning it down. When the dog gets close to the handle or I'll turn that power off. So it's not a punishment. It's just a little stimulation to the dog. And he knows, well, when I get back to, to the handle or to dad or mom, that stimulation will stop. And we just start teaching the dog through not a whole lot of conflict. It's just a basketball. Nobody's too excited. Just And it's very, very forgiving. So if the dog starts to come back and then he wants to break and go back to the basketball, then we just simply turn the stimulation level up a little bit. And we can just show him warmer, colder. And it's all kept very low very forgiving at that point. So we're, we're introducing him to it with very little conflict. What I can say, and I think no news to most people listening, is that almost every dog, if they've been imported, they've had an e-collar at some point. And you can you can see the way they react. And a lot of those dogs, even though the handler says, well, he's never had an e-collar, you put it on him, yeah, the dog knows right away. And then you see that conflict right away. And we just keep working through it and just stay that same course of, 
low level stimulation. The dog's not going to be perfect around, uh, you know, a, a basketball if he'll play with it. Very few dogs will not chase a basketball and play with it if you if you make it valuable to them when when the dog's in muzzle. So we just spend our time just introducing, you know, that when you do your command, when you do the command, I tell you, that annoyance uh, will turn off, that stimulation will turn off. So we work heels and downs and some recalls. And once the dog's doing pretty good, then we'll take the leash off him. And the leash is just so we don't have to have the dog keep running back. And I don't want to, I'm not going to set myself up to where I have to give the dog too much power. So I'll keep the dog, keep the power low. And if the dog hits the end of the leash, we'll just give him a little bit more power. But once the dog understands that program, we take the leash off him. Same program, just, you know, get the dog so he can, he can understand what I'm, I'm just communicating with him. Just, just to teach him. And it's, that starts to build that trust. And right. from there, we just move the dog into, we put two decoys out on the field. And the dog's got a heel around in between the two decoys. And when he clears his head, he goes to the decoy that I send him to. And uh, just clear your head, calm down. And when he's not clear-headed and he starts working his way towards the decoy, if he breaks the heel, we're going to turn the power up a little bit. When he goes back to the handler, we'll turn it back down. And again, it's all about showing that dog, we're not going to fry you just because you want to bite a decoy. you know. And, and right. I like starting the new dogs with the ball so if you tried to do that with a new dog with two decoys, if for some reason the dog does get stressed about it all, I don't want that stress to be associated with the bite work. I always want it to be associated with something different. So once I know the dog is good with, with uh, you know, a ball and stuff, then I'll introduce the bite work. And, and it's just a matter of, of getting the dog clear, cleared in his head where he's healing around under control, not it doesn't have to be a perfect heel, and it doesn't have to be any of that. It's just, just so the dog's under control. And when I see the dog, you know, usually when you walk around a decoy, if you're walking towards them, the dog's foraging and trying to get to the decoy. I'll have the handle do a quick about face. We'll give the dog some stimulation right there so he ties it in. And you'll see the dog will kind of relax for a minute because he's not staring at a decoy. And when he clears his head and he's not staring at the decoy, then the command to go bite the other decoy comes in and we start to marking that behavior that clear your head and you'll get a bite. So we're, we're clearing the dog's head and we're teaching the dog the stimulation, no matter what you've had in the past, the stimulation from here forward is going to be very low, very forgiving. We're not going to fry you. And what's amazing to me is I've had quite a few dogs that had inappropriate amounts of stimulation for fairly long periods of time, like maybe you know, dogs that haven't released for more than a year that I know they've done a lot of stuff to these dogs. And the dogs are amazing because they're so forgiving that they come out on the field the first time they feel the stimulation, they're vocal, they're hyped up, and they think, all right, the next, you know, you're starting on 15, but it's going to be 120 in a second. And after rep after rep, they realize that 15 turns into 20 and then back down to 10, and we're not usually going over 30 or 40. They start, they'll build that trust right away. And it's just amazing how, how forgiving dogs are. Nice. Kind of a long answer to how I introduced No, them. that's a great no, answer. No, no, it's a great I answer. Like, it, it, I like well, the way you it, answered it. It's not as easy, you know. Uh, yeah. Mo yeah. Most people put these collars on dogs and begin that punitive pressure. Yeah. And that just causes yeah. conflict. Like you said, you know, or, you know, now that you put the collar on the dog and now his tail is down or ears down, they're not happy. And, yeah. you know, people use way too much stimulation in the beginning. And it's nice to hear that you're using something uh, based, giving them stimulus, letting them play with the ball. They can't get the ball, obviously, because the muzzle. Yeah. But then you can, yeah. with the leash, and then you can start teaching that that leash pressure and that collar, it's it's still low level. And we can get you back to where you're going to be. And then you get to go have fun again. And yeah. so you're taking and the conflict away. Right. 
and it's all it's you know we take our time with it too so you know some dogs pick it up right away and they're wait, whoa, whoa, right wait, wait a minute wait a minute jeff gotta do everything in 30 minutes no yeah exactly <laughs> uh, uh, everything happens in 30 minutes that's that's america today come on yeah, take exactly. your time Woo. hey folks we're excited to tell you about one of our new sponsors that's ray allen manufacturing Ray Allen has been making canine-related products since 1948. Many of you recognize the name Ray Allen with being synonymous with quality canine gear. Both Rich and I have been ordering equipment from them for years. My now adult sons have shared with me that some of their childhood memories involved seeing Ray Allen catalogs at home. That's right, folks, catalogs that came in the mail before the internet. Over the past few years, we've gotten to know some of the faces behind the scenes and have come to appreciate them for who they are. We've also enjoyed the banner back and forth. I've been the subject of at least one prank. It's relationships like these that are icing on top of the cake when it comes to doing business with a company. When searching for canine-related gear, seek out a trusted name in the industry. That's Ray Allen Manufacturing. For a 10% discount, use the WDD10 discount code. Thank you. So by taking our time with it, you know, we, it's some dogs, and I tell people, you know, it, I always tell when I'm, go into a class and I'm setting one up or whatever, I, I tell whoever's setting it up, you know, bring me one of those short school bus dogs. I want I want the dog that, that drives everybody crazy because we're all going to learn from that dog. You know, if I get a bunch of really obedient dogs that maybe don't have quite as much drive, it's not as much. So I tell people then, you know, once, we, once we've looked at the dogs, some of the dogs are going to go, we're not going to go, you know, one through six or one through 10 every time. We might jump in a few dogs a few more times because they need more reps and everybody stands there and learns from those dogs and gets to see the progression yeah. and, and that, you know, then we get everybody to one level and we, we move on, but it is a, it's a forgiving system. Right. So and I, I guess if you, you know, I'd like to kind of mention that for me, the, the two decoys is, is super, super important uh, because I look at it, um, you know, looking at dogs, dog psychology and, and the way that I was trained and what I've seen and what I really, really believe is that when you get one dog and you got one dog and one decoy, that's that's the dog in my mind that has got a bunny in a hole. And it's a, for over the top prey. All of my energy can be directed towards this decoy because no matter what happens, I'm going to go bite this decoy. That's the only thing that I, I can listen to you. I can act like I'm healing next to you under control. I can, I, but all you can see it in the dog that all of their drive, they know in a minute, I'm going to bite that one person on the field. That's it. What I found is that when you put two decoys out there, instead of the dog that's got a bunny and a hole barking at it, you got a dog that's going to go get in a fight and he's nice and calm and clear headed. And I, I, I firmly, firmly believe there is a difference between, you know, call what you want. We, our terminology is pray and fight. I firmly believe there's a dog that there's a difference in a dog that is thinking and acting and pray that I'm going to run and, and grab this bunny and kill it. And there's a dog that there's a dude there and I'm going to measure my, my physical ability against him like a UFC fighter. And when I put two decoys out on the field, that dog doesn't have all the energy towards one decoy because there's two. And when we're working on clearing the dog's head, walking around and making the dog be clear-headed, the second he's clear-headed and we give that command, go bite this guy. A lot of times we'll do it. You'll see the dog starts loading up on the decoy in the red suit. And once he's real loaded up on him, when we heal around, we do a quick about face, give him a little stimulation to break some of that focus. You'll see the dog's body language relax. It's very nuanced, just a little bit. But when he has that moment of clarity, 
Then instead of the red suit that he thought he was going to bite, we turn around and send him on the blue suit. And we'll say, you know, send him on blue. Now the dog's running down there, and they, they, they quickly start understanding. If I clear my head, walk next to Dad, cool stuff's going to happen. And you get that dog that doesn't, isn't chasing the, the bunny that we all know is very difficult to control. Start getting a dog that is like, there's bunnies everywhere. Daddy will tell me which one I can go get. But we start clearing the dog's head, and it takes all of that energy the dog is expending towards one decoy. Some of that energy comes back up the leash to, Dad, what do you want me to do? And we start clearing the dog's head. And you tell, and we build this, I, I refer to it as a business-like relationship. Check in with me, and good things are going to happen. So I don't want the dog that's going to uh, be staring at me all the time, but I want a dog that is paying attention. And if he looks up at me real quick, I know his head is clear because he's not sending all that energy towards, you know, this decoy. So that's a time where I'll probably send him, all right, hey, you, you want to know what to do? Go bite that guy and start clearing him. So the, the, very rarely do people put two decoys on the field. And when they do, I don't think they understand how valuable it can be, but um, you—it's you, very, very unusual that you would find me doing bite work with one decoy. Very, it's very really interesting. I don't, Jeff. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody explain that like that. Nope. And I, I, it I makes have a dog a in the club. We're going to do that right now with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes yeah. a lot of sense because I think, though, as you were describing, I'm thinking of the dogs that get completely fixated on that one particular decoy. Yeah. And, and they're amazing creatures, but they can, they can't, and they can attend to that one thing very, very well. So we throw another element or another uh, decoy out there. Now they're a little off their game because yeah. they can't, they can't attend to those two things with the same amount of intensity as they would fixate on the one. Well, and I think when, when you say they're attending to the one, I think there's some dogs that can just accept that and keep their head clear. Mm-hmm. But I think those dogs, in my opinion, are more of the exception. I think most of the right. dogs, especially the more times we've gotten them out of the car and walked them up to the field, and there's one guy in a gigantic bite suit, and they know they're going to have a lot of a lot of fun. Even the dogs that look very, very much in control, and they and, and I shouldn't say look, the dogs that are indeed in control, they they do everything they handle their ass. They got clean releases. Even those dogs, when you look at them, that clarity in their head is more of an obedience to like i'm i'm doing what you want but i'm in condition black because i know i'm going to bite this one object every all of my energy and you'll see them they'll be healing and the dog will be looking back you know they can turn their head halfway around to look at that decoy but when the dog now starts having two and three decoys and on on the third day when we put three and four decoys and we have them spread out 60 70 80 yards apart apart and we're doing running recalls and all kinds of stuff then all of a sudden that energy that dog has is coming back up the leash like dad what do you want to do and it's it's a joy to watch when you see the dog they'll be on one decoy we'll call them off and we'll send them to the next decoy and by the third day most of the dogs as they run by they will actually run by and look up at, at the handler like, where am I going? Because once the dog starts to run towards one decoy, then we're going to throw in a recall or a down and change it up and just start keeping that mind clear. And what I've found is that when you introduce the two decoys and you're really paying a lot of attention to the dog's mindset and you clear the dog's mind for just a second, and I mean, it's a split second at first, then the next time you get 
two seconds. And then pretty soon you get in four and five seconds of the dog walking with that clarity and that relaxed walk that you're not going to get with one decoy. Then pretty soon the dog's walking around with five and six decoys and he's nice and relaxed because it's like, I'm not going to, it's not that prey, I'm going to chase a bunny. It's I'm going to go get in a fight and I'm in a UFC, UFC fighter mode where mm-hmm. it's going to be a, an actual fight. I'm, I'm an athlete. I'm going to go do it. And you can, if you don't tap into that mindset, um, you're not going to get it. And I think uh, to me, again, one, one suit, I think you just, it creates problems. And, and I, again, uh, on that same note, I don't use sleeves ever for the same, same thing. I don't like the presentation of sleeve. I think it's a prey item. And, uh, you know, if, if I was, if for some reason I was working a release problem and I, I happen to ha- only have one decoy, that decoy would be in a suit. But generally, if I'm going to work a dog and try to, you know, solve a problem or something, I will have two decoys in full suits. Now, do you not use a suit? Uh, not that you just sleeve ever, even for a young dog, or you know, for a young dog, if we're teaching them how to bite, okay. you know, right, right. I, I got you. Just, just but, making yeah. some clarity yeah, for yeah, our yeah, listeners, yeah. making yeah, sure they understand. Yeah, there's a, a time and a place, but I really, I you know, I mean, pretty much my training is either a suit, I do a lot of muzzle, I like muzzle a lot, and then you know, inaccessible hides, you know, where for no equipment hides, but I, I just don't do a lot of sleeve work. I never really have. I, I have a sleeve that, that, uh, uh, that at one of the seminars, some one of the vendors gave me one to to try it, and man, if I went and got it now, I've, I've had it for twelve years, and it looks pretty new still. So I, it's just not. <laughs> I, I just I really like what we can do with a dog in a bite suit better, you know. And I think you know when you combine to me a, a bite suit, a muzzle, and you know safe hides or inaccessible hides, I think you get most of the the problems of equipment fixation out of it and i think the system that i've been describing here that's not based the the dog is not all jacked up because he's going to go bite the one guy in the suit in the middle of the field what we wait for is when the dog checks in with the handler you know what what is my job i'm building this business like relationship there's two and three guys in suits out here dad what do you want me to do i want you to go bite that guy and then he gets to go bite that guy that translates very nicely to the street when the dog, when you say, go bite that guy, the dog is like, I know this game. It's not because he's wearing a thing. It's because you told me that. So, right. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you want, I can kind of explain, I do a, a check-in process that helps out a lot. And I'd be happy to explain that. Oh, to absolutely. You. absolutely. Please yes. do. Let me tell you about our newest sponsor, Gold Coast Canine. Gold Coast 20 acre modern canine training facility is located in sunny Southern California and was established in 1991. Gold Coast owner Rodney Spicer was bitten by the Schutzenbug in the mid-80s, and by the year 2000, he tuttled over 20 different dogs in a variety of working dog sports, from Schutzen to protection sports. This led him to eventually work with police dogs and began selling them to vendors. In the mid-90s, Gold Coast began selling dogs directly to police agencies. To date, Gold Coast supplies dogs to over 100 law enforcement agencies and provides training to 27 agencies for regularly scheduled maintenance training in both patrol and detection. Gold Coast has founded innovative canine courses such as canine stress inoculation, prior deployments, and reality-based detection training. They've also introduced biometrics in the selection and evaluation period in order to increase the likelihood of success. Gold Coast developed a covert detection program for the largest technology company in the world. They also provide detection services to entertainment theme parks, hotels, and special events. 
When you think Gold Coast Canine, think reliable, experienced, and innovative. Check out goldcoastcanine.com for more information on your next single or dual-purpose canine. Also, check out their course schedule, merchandise, home protectors, and additional services. Follow Gold Coast Canine on all social media platforms. For a 10% discount on merchandise, use the GCK910 discount code. On that same that same mindset, we'll take two decoys. And again, we're not we when the dog is is starting to get really hyper focused on the the bite suit on one of the suits, and he's you're walking towards him. You'll see the ears are up. The dog is you know getting bigger. You know they're 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 you can just see they're almost salivating and they're barely under control as they're healing. That's that prey mindset. When that dog gets into that prey mindset. A lot of times, what a great exercise that I came up with out of necessity for one particular dog, and it worked so well. I needed to break that dog's focus a little bit, so we'll take that dog and let him build himself into that mindset, and then we'll put the dog into a down, and then I'll have the the decoy that the dog is fixated on walk over, you know, and be four feet away, right in front of that dog. So now you can imagine that dog is just loading himself up. Like, I'm going to go bite this guy. And then I'll have the handler walk directly behind the dog, line himself up with the tail. Not on either side. I mean, line himself up on the tail. So that way, what I'm waiting for, and most dogs, surprisingly, will not break. And I tell everybody, if the dog breaks and goes and bites that guy, the dog's biting someone in a bite suit. We'll lift him off, bring him back to the heel. But most dogs will stay in that down because they're, they're waiting for that word. And they know that any second, Dad or mom is going to say, go, and I'm going to go bite this guy. And they're, they're, they lock up. And that dog, and we want him to, to be in that mindset. And then we, we have the handler stand behind him. And the reason I want the handler always behind them is because at a certain point, when we've stood there long enough, that dog is going to turn around and find the handler and look at him like, what the hell are we doing? And when he does that, the handler is going to give a quick recall towards him and send him to the other decoy. And it's that moment of clarity that if I'd have looked at you 10 minutes ago, I'd have been down biting that quick. And we start building that check-in. And it's a fun thing to do. So like the next time you guys have your training groups out, the dogs that have a very good release and are very obedient, when you do the check-in, they're going to do that right away. Some of it is through training and some of it is through their genetics that they're just those dogs that are not handler dependent, but they're, they're more trainable. They, they want to do the will of the handler, so they check in with them. The ones that have almost no release, those are the dogs that we're going to wait. And I've waited now more than 30 minutes. And we'll have a class, and I tell people, you know, tell the decoy, just stand still. Don't The decoy is looking over the top of the dog, not making eye contact, and we wait. And the dog, I mean, a lot of times they'll, they'll get comfortable and they'll roll over on one leg, but they'll just keep staring. The tongue's hanging out, and they keep staring, but if we wait them out, and so far I haven't had a dog yet that we haven't waited out. Now, it might happen when I have figured out, but if we wait that dog out, when he finally turns around and we just tell him, he'll go bite this guy, it's like a, a, a clarity for the dog that then when we set that up the next time, that dog, when he gets set up in that same situation, will turn around and look at the handler right away, like, what's my job? And we're building that, that nice. business-like relationship that you tell me what to do. And it's it's not because the guy's wearing a bite suit. It's not because he's cracking a whip and yelling or doing anything. It's because you said, go bite that guy. And then we can get the decoys and be standing perfectly still. Go bite him. And the, the so you could do that. 
you could also do that exercise in muzzle, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times yeah. we, a lot of times we'll do, do that in muzzle, you know, if, if we have, cause usually, you know, if we have a dog that doesn't have a release, that dog, even though there's decoys and bite suits, we're working him in muzzle because we're trying to build all of this psychology that I'm talking about without having to fight him off the bite. And it's funny, you know, we work on people that want to get their dogs to release a bite. They're thinking, what do I have to do to make this dog release a bite? But when we start working on all the stuff that we're talking about here, then you get the dog and he's clear headed and he's understands that I'm not going to fry you with this e-collar. I'm building that trust with you. We, and we get that mindset changed into the dog. These, a lot of times I've had handlers think that it's almost magic because then we take the muzzle off. Well, now the dog will come off because the game has changed. You know, so a lot of times when I have a dog that, that doesn't have very good release, he'll spend the first day and a half in muzzle doing the same exercises with the decoys around, teaching and just changing that mindset. I'm not going to fight the dog when he's biting down on something. I'm going to try and clear his head long before he gets to that. And usually then when he goes and bites, it makes it much easier to, to, to now communicate with them. Okay, nice. That's a, that's a great idea. I have a dog in our sport club that we do that is going to, we can really use this system. Yeah. I think. We're going to, we're going to give it a well, shot. That's good. Awesome. Thank you. Great information. And I'm actually, yeah, let me know how, you know, how it works. I absolutely for will. point of clarity, where is the second decoy in relation to the first? Besides police dogs, Gold Coast K9 sells K9 home protectors. Gold Coast K9 trains and develops top-tier home protection dogs that leverage their specialized security and protection training to keep their home and family safe. Each home protection dog is hand-selected and goes through a rigorous screening process prior to training to determine their natural physical and mental aptitudes. This in-depth evaluation ensures they have the ideal temperament and work ethic to create the perfect family companion and home protector. The canine home protectors are thoroughly trained in obedience, agility, barking on command, searching a residence for intruders, and searching, monitoring outdoor perimeters. The canine home protectors are sociable and vigilant. Their concierge service offers regularly scheduled maintenance training, annual refresher, home visits, veterinary care, and board and train while out of town. Gold Coast Canine Home Protector is also well socialized with other dogs, humans, and animals of other species to ensure they are extremely well balanced. You can think of the Gold Coast Canine Home Protectors as family companions with added abilities. Check out goldcoastcanine.com for a full list of training offerings. Also, follow Gold Coast Canine on all social media platforms. Remember to use the GCK910 discount code for 10% off Gold Coast Canine merchandise. So when we do the, like if we're doing the check-in, yes. he's, he's behind the handler. So, so that way he's, gotcha. it's, he's out of the picture. So that way it's, he's not, he, I don't want the dog to be able to look at the two. That's a very right. good question. I don't want him to switch back and forth. I want him to be like, damn, if I would have looked at you, dad, you're going to send me. So he's at least, he's either behind the handler. He's not next to the handler. And that's one of the things I don't ever do is I never have the handler sending him next to the decoy next to him i don't want the dog to start thinking when i'm coming back i get to bite the guy next to you i don't want that for tactical reasons so it's always go by me and bite the guy down range or go 45 degrees or something but but that he's out of the dog's field of vision and the handler the reason i want him behind the dog like lined up with his tail is i want the dog sometimes will glance around real quick i want it to be very demonstrative that the dog is actually 
cranking his head all the way around looking at the handler. Now it's not going to be a long stare. It's going to be like, what are we doing? And the, the handler's got to be ready. The second he cranks his head all the way around to look at dad, he needs to say, you know, come to me, go bite this other guy. And with his, you know, it's two commands, it's heel and bite. And once we've waited the dog, you know, if we wait, the dogs that are, are a little bit stubborn and we wait 15, 20, 25 minutes, the next time we do a check-in, it drops down to five or six minutes and by the next day that we've built that in, like, all right, I know this game, check in with you. And, and it, 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 like I said, it's a fun, I encourage everybody to go out and try it with your training groups and you'll know which dogs, there's plenty of dogs that as they're putting them in a down and the handle's walking back, the dog will start checking in with them right away. And those are the dogs that, that genetically and through training have already built in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's a great drill. I can't wait to try yeah, I think it would be good too. We we do some directionals that require the dogs to check in, and we're we're looking for that. So my handlers are are very well aware of what that moment in time looks like that they need to capture. Yeah. We did not get into markers, but at some point maybe we'll do another absolutely another episode because I know I think one of our original conversations was centered around conditioned reinforcers and markers. Yeah, that's another. And, uh, Another fun subject. Yes, it is very much so. So if I go back, you know, over five years ago, I I wasn't using a marker of any. Uh, any yeah, I sort. wasn't. I wasn't either, <laughs> and, and now I can't imagine training a detection dog without it. Cannot. Well, very good. Well, I got a brand new puppy that I'm getting ready to start. He's uh, he's not a well, he's not brand new anymore. He's ten months old, and we're getting ready to start the same thing. First, first nice. dog with it. So we'll see because he is a handful. Oh, nice. That'll be 10 month old Dutch Shepherd, about 80 pounds already. Just a monster of a man already. And he's such, he's so immature that he, it's, he's almost jerkish, but it's just because he's <laughs> immature, you know? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Nice dog. Can't settle. Hard, hard to get him to settle. But so far, his bite work looks pretty good. But uh, nice. I've sent, I've sent nice. Howard a couple of videos and he's, he doesn't get any free bites anymore. He has to go find them all by himself. And uh, nice. so we've been, we started that and he's, he's actually doing very well. So that's a, uh, interesting to see so I'm, I'm going to try the uh first time ever with the uh detection and markers so we'll see oh that'll be fun i'll, I'll let yeah, you know it'll <laughs> <laughs> be great so what's what's on tap for you jeff what's next um you know i've got uh i've got several e-collar classes that i've got lined up that i'm uh i'm doing if you you, you can check out uh, my website and uh I've, I've got those i'm happy if, if people are intrigued by this and and they uh, want want to do one, you know, just contact me. I'm happy to do it. Now that I'm retired, uh, I I can I can devote a lot of time. And in fact, I actually even have now retired from uh, the Hits company, so I'm not yeah. not part of Hits anymore. So I'm just doing. I really one of the reasons was is Hits was was great, great partners. I think we did great events and stuff, but it was taking a lot of time. And uh, I I really you know it's it's fun having you know all the cops that you know. 1200 cops together but i really really enjoy spending three days with 10 or 11 dogs and and you know doing uh you know e-collars or or marker training or some of the advanced classes that we do so that's that's basically what's on tap for me is just to to spend the next uh, couple years traveling around and uh you know kind of teaching some of these systems that usually you know if i go somewhere these systems that I've put into place are, are ones that I think it's pretty easy that if somebody goes to a class, then they can start sharing the same system. It's not like you got to 
you have to have, have me come back over and over and over. It's they're pretty straightforward system. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, I, yeah, just start making it a little bit better for some of the handlers, take some of their stress off them. Nice. Now, are you, you say you're traveling to do this? Yeah. I, so I, you know, any anybody wants to host a class, they just contact me, and then uh, you know, I, I'll go to their location. We sign up the the handlers. I handle all that the logistics for them. They just have to give me a classroom and a field. So somebody will contact me and say, "Hey, I want to do a class," and through a couple of emails, we figure out the dates and then, uh, I'll, I'll go to them and, and do a three day class. And, uh, so, okay. so right now I think I've got classes in, uh, I've went in Pace in Arizona, um, New Mexico. Can't remember. I've got a few signed up already. And then yeah. some people that are, are, now are you, li- are you limiting it to just law enforcement? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just law enforcement. And the e-collar classes are, uh, I only, only law enforcement and the e-collar classes also, um, are just for patrol dogs. So, I don't do detector dogs with them. I think, I mean, I don't usually, I'm a big e-collar advocate. I just don't use e-collars for detection work. I know you can, sure, but it's just not something I do. And the reward systems and everything else I've built in with the e-collar, talking about these check-ins and all that is all based on patrol dogs. So I don't do, I don't do detector dogs, you know, single purpose detector dogs for that class. The best way for folks to get a hold of you? Probably the best way is it, you can go to my, my website, which is the police canine training.net police canine training.net um, or just email me and it's uh, Jeff Meyer one at outlook.com. Either of those are pretty easy or just Google my name. It comes up for podcasts and everything else. It's not too hard to find me. Nice. Very good. All right. We really appreciate your time. Well, man, it's been informative. I really, the two decoy thing. I really like that idea. That's a, a great drill. I hope our listeners, because uh, Howard now, when we get feedback, is information like that is what you know our police canine guys are looking for. So thanks sure. for th- for sharing something new that uh, we haven't heard in a while, and uh, hopefully that helps give that a shot. Awesome. Yeah, and it's fun doing a you know I, I'm usually on your side of the microphone doing, <laughs> doing it, so it's actually kind of fun you know to just be able to kind of kind of go in whatever direction. So I, I appreciate you guys having me on here. Absolutely. Very good. Jeff, thanks for taking your time, man. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Howard Young, what a great episode. Super nice guy, humble, great training information. I enjoyed that one. Yes, I like the way he presented his information. I thought it was very clear, concise, yeah. uh, made a lot of sense to me. Going to be trying to have... Go ahead. So I'm going to be trying, no, be trying to two dog We have thing. one of those episodes that I, I just feel like really kind of clicked with me, and that one did. Yeah, I think so too. Sure. Nice guy. I liked him. All right. So, so what's on what's on tap for this evening or what's in the barrel, I should say. What's yeah. in the barrel is Elijah Craig 18 year, which man, if you can get it, it's Elijah Craig's premier bourbon, honestly. Yeah. It's uh hard to find here in North Carolina. It's expensive. Yeah, good bourbon. Well, kind of on I have the hot some. side. What's that? Kind of on the hot side. It is a little warm, a little warm, but it's good. I mean, it's over 100 proof. Very nice. Well, my friend, as always, here's to the hair of the dog that bit you. Great seeing you. Good seeing you. Take care. Thanks so much, you guys, for following along, supporting us, and listening to these wonderful conversations that Howard and I are just blessed to have each and every day. We'd like to thank and support all of our first responders, police, fire, EMS, and our military for once again holding the line, keeping us safe. Stay safe, brothers and sisters. 
We love you. God bless, and God bless America.